listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Caroline, and I'm excited to bring you today's podcast where we're bringing you on a virtual field trip. Regular readers of Getting Smart have seen lots of blogs on place-based education over the last year and a half. Connecting with and learning from a community has so many benefits for young people and the places they come from. It's not hard to tell that our team is super passionate about this topic. We're writing a field guide to place-based learning, and we're doing it with experts in the field at Teton Science Schools in Jackson, Wyoming. Tom and Emily recently spent time in Jackson at a writing retreat with Nate McLennan, who's their VP of Education and Innovation at the Teton Science Schools. When they arrived, Tom and Emily were greeted by Kristen Gerard, the host at the Murray Ranch in the Grand Teton National Park. She explained why the ranch was the perfect place to write about place. Let's listen in. Christine, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is uh, Chris Gerard. I'm the programs manager and Murray Ranch faculty at uh, the Murray Ranch of Teton Science Schools. And what is the Murray Ranch? Uh, the Murray Ranch is a National Historic Landmark District that's in the heart of Grand Teton National Park. And it is often referred to as conservation's home. Uh, this was a place that has a lot of significance in the uh, modern-day conservation movement, so that individuals who lived here during the latter part of the 20th century, the Murray family, were instrumental in a lot of uh, some of the biggest pieces of wilderness uh, and public lands legislation, including the 1964 Wilderness Act uh, and the Alaska Lands Act, uh, that set aside over 56 million acres of land in the uh, northern part of Alaska. There's a, a rumor that the Wilderness Act may have been written here or notes were started here? Yeah, the framework for the Wilderness Act was written right here on the ranch, on the front porch of uh, the Murray residence where Marty and Olas Murray were living. Uh, and it was uh, drafted by Howard Zahnheiser, um, who was a friend of the Murrays and part of the Wilderness Society, which Olas Murray headed for several decades as president. Speaking of front porches, we're, we're sitting at a rustic cabin, and you say some uh, famous people have stayed here. Yeah, we're sitting on the front porch of a little cabin called Robin's Nest, uh, and this was a cabin that was favored by John Denver, who was a good friend of Marty's. Uh, and he used to come to the ranch and sing to her and sing for her. And he actually wrote a song called A Song for All Lovers, uh, honoring Marty and her lifetime of dedication to conservation and public lands. Uh, and she and Olas, her beloved, loved to dance. And they danced wherever they felt like it and all over uh, the the country. And um, they spent a lot of time up in Alaska. So uh, this song is about the two of them dancing on the Arctic tundra. So Chris, what happens here at the ranch these days? So this ranch currently is stewarded by the Teton Science Schools. We are an education nonprofit, a place-based nonprofit. 
Uh, and our work is, is about place. It's about connecting people to the places that they are from and that they are in through exploring uh, ecology and economy and culture and um, helping people to make, make those connections uh, between different aspects of our landscape. Um, so we steward this ranch on behalf of the park service and the public. And a lot of residential learning happens here. So adults and families and students from all over the country and all over the world come here to learn about the Murrays and the Murray legacy and uh, understand um, and reflect on the impact that one person can have on uh, making a difference in the world. So a lot of place-based education happens here. I, I guess when you, when you think about the impact that you'd like this place to have how do you how do you think about it it's had a big impact uh for the last 40 years what what do you see as a contribution for the next 40 you know i think the Murray legacy and the story of the murrays is uh a story about uh again as i said the impact that an individual can have uh when they put their mind to it. Um, Marty uh, was a really strong proponent of um, education and in particular youth education. And she found a lot of inspiration uh, from younger generations who are going to take the reins of uh, the environmental and conservation movement in the future. And so my hope and my belief um, for this place in particular is that it's a place of inspiration and it's a place where right. individuals can um, can find that that inspiration for themselves that allows them to follow their curiosity and um, uh, and and have a point of impact in their community or in their world so we're here hoping for a little inspiration because we're writing a book about place-based education. When you think about um, the millions of teachers in the United States, um, what, what should they know about place-based learning? Well, I think place-based learning is powerful because it's about uh, the the places that have the most relevance to you. And right. Every place is a place. Right? Absolutely. It has something to teach. Absolutely. So, you know, it's not uh, necessarily that this is the place for the highest impact of place-based learning. It's uh, it's an idea that can be translated into any place. Right. It can and be Brooklyn or in a field in Nebraska. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be in the, the, foot, the foothills of the Tetons. Yeah, or boardwalk in Seattle. Right. And uh, so it's the... It's the interest and um, ability to engage with those places and find a point of connection um, that allows you to dive deeper into the place you're in and ask questions and seek um, seek answers. Seems like it's um, hard work. It takes a little bit of extra effort to get outside and get permission slips and maybe raise a little money for a, a field trip. Is it? Is it worth the extra effort? Absolutely. You know, I think when um, when learning becomes relevant and when um, learning turns a spark on in an individual, then that person is going to remember that experience and they're going to start to make connections to yeah. 
to that experience, to past experience, and want to have future experiences. So the, um, the impact that place-based learning can have um, is um, undeniable. Yeah, Teton Science Schools is uh, a leader in outdoor ed and, and place-based learning. I think you have almost 20,000 people come through here every year. And when I think about what, the things that young people are going to remember 20 years from now, they're going to remember their visit to Teton Science School, probably not a worksheet in math. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, they're, they might not remember the, you know, the lesson that we teach on glaciology or, um, you know, uh, rock formation at the base of the Tetons, but they will remember being outside and they will remember having a powerful experience in Grand Teton National Park with their friends, with their teachers or with their families. That's great. Thanks, Chris. Next, Tom, Emily, and Nate dive into the six aspects of place-based education and talk about the guidebook that they'll be writing. Nate McLennan, Emily Liptag, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Have you uh, enjoyed your stay here at the Murray Ranch, Emily? I have to say it's been phenomenal. This is a uh, unique place, a lot of history here. Yeah, spectacular place with a lot of uh, history in um, environmentalism. Um, I really dug sleeping in um, John Denver's cabin. He, he was a he was a guest here, so lot lot of a uh, lot of roots in music and dance and environmentalism in this in this part of the park. We're talking about place based education today. Uh, what is that? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, we look at place based education as connecting learning with communities. Uh, to do three things. One is to increase student and teacher engagement. The second is to increase academic outcomes. And the third and the the far-reaching goal is to really increase community impact. And so when you connect learning experiences with local places, uh, it provides context for students, it provides relevance, uh, and it provides importance uh, for students as well. I love the the addition of community impact. Is that unique to Teton Science Schools or to most people that think about place-based link it to impact? I think, I think people who have thought about place-based education uh, have, have, have discussed it and talked about what they can do to increase um, and make their communities better. We're trying to codify that. We're trying to think about how to measure it. We're really trying to think about can place-based education be a tool in the K-12 system to really increase capacity in those communities uh, and give students agency to, 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 to really have ownership over their communities or whatever community they so is live it, in. Is it broader than just outdoor education? Yeah, you bet. So in place-based education, we define place as uh, three components. And so we have the economic component of place. Uh, we have the social, political, or cultural component of place, and then the ecological. And we think it's really critical that students get a, uh, a perspective from all three of those lenses when they look at communities to become good decision makers and figure out where they want to make a difference and where they want to do projects within those communities. Emily, you just um, you just posted uh, a great microsite on high-quality project-based learning, working with uh, your friends at the the Buck Institute, how does place-based education relate to high-quality project-based learning? Sure. And actually, before I go into that, I want to tap into something that I feel really powerful about place is that there's this misnomer, I think, in some spaces that it is just that outdoor ed um, component, but that I've seen really powerful 
place-based work going on in urban centers, in really rural spaces, um, in work-based learning, so that the power of place isn't limited just to the great outdoors. While we think it's a great asset and that a lot of yeah. times PB is done there. Um, and that's a great addition that every, yeah. every place has something to offer, something to teach. Absolutely. But on that same vein, we also feel that while it doesn't have to be but that often high quality projects, projects that really engage students in um, a meaningful project and experience usually have some element of place. Um, this high quality project-based learning campaign that we've been working on wanted to identify different aspects that made projects really strong. And we find that all the projects we explored that were really high quality somehow tied a student to place, their community, um, an expert in their community, a museum in their community, a park in their community, so on and so forth. So there's this reciprocal relationship between place and powerful projects. Um, we also think that place-based education usually has students um, working on extended challenges or extended projects. To truly do something for that place or understand that place, it's normally not a one-and-done 10-minute uh, activity. It's a extended project that engages students in that place. So a big overlap between place-based education and high-quality project-based learning. Um, Nate, let, let's run through the you have five or six design principles from uh, Teton Science Schools. Um, it's a beautiful framework uh, that, that we really appreciate. And I want to quickly run through that, that whole framework and have both of you comment uh, on the elements. And the first one is this view that uh, the community should be viewed as a classroom. What does that really mean to you and and the, the teachers here at Teton Science? Yeah, for us, we see uh, the, the end of an era of the classroom being the only place that we learn. And we've long known, all educators have known that there's great learning that happens outside the classroom through extracurriculars, uh, through work, through family experiences. And, and place-based education really seeks to make that a central concept, that we start tapping into what we call a learning ecosystem uh, that exists within places, that all the experiences and the opportunities, the people, the places, uh, um, and the history of a place, the, the future potential of a place, all become rich fodder for study and investment by those students. Um, and so when we think about community as a classroom, it could be uh, um, guest speakers that they're working with at a really, really light level, or it could be a deeply embedded long-term high quality project that they're, they're truly invested in that will make a difference in their community. So when we think about community as classroom, that's really expanding the definition of, of, of what learning looks like to account for the world outside of just the, the traditional box of a classroom. And the engagement just skyrockets, right? When right. you have communities classroom. I think back to when I was doing play space in my own classroom and we engaged students in building a local garden. They turned it into a farmer's market. They had community members weigh in, give them advice. And I could get students to do things <laughs> that I never could have gotten them to do without that connection to community and that tie from my classroom to what was going on in their immediate zip code and world. Yeah, and while Jackson, Wyoming is a really cool place to to view community as classroom, uh, Emily, as you said earlier, every place has something to offer. Uh, cities are particularly rich places to learn. Um, 
on many different dimensions. Absolutely. I think cultural, you know, cultural, historical underpinnings of what makes a place, environmental factors that are going on, what's come before in that place, what the future plans are for that place. There's so many layers. And we know that at times in um, urban centers, there can be barriers, right? Transportation, um, safety and access to different locations within a city. Um, But we're confident and seen a lot of examples how people have navigated those barriers that everyone can find a place within their community that's um, powerful to explore and a viable option. I remember one of my first exposures to a great uh, place-based school was a museum school in New York City. I visited Mm -hmm. in 1999. And they told me that they partnered with six museums. So the kids were out in museums two days a week. And I said, how can you possibly afford all those yellow buses? And they looked at me like I was from Mars. And they said, <laughs> Tom, our kids take the subway. Right. So, you know, you have to figure this out, the logistics out in every in every city. But uh, the, the payoff is big, as, as we'll describe. Nate, the second principle is uh, learner-centered. How and why is place-based learner-centered? That's great. It's a great pivot from the community as classroom where um, it's one thing for the teacher to set up a a project that's embedded in place from their own exploration. um, And and there's some real merit in that to show students how this work gets done. But if you then put the learner at the center of that and you start having the the students make the decisions about what's important to them, uh, that comes from their context, their background, and that's relevant to them, we tap into what we know about learning sciences and how uh, when we build upon prior knowledge, we increase engagement, we increase overall learning and academic outcomes. And so when we put the learner at the center from a small way, we can give them voice and choice about what direction they want to, they may take a teacher-directed project. And in sort of the full manifestation, students will say, we are interested in this. We know the competencies or the outcomes of the standards we need to work on uh, as prescribed, say, by the school or state. And we're going to tie these together into this beautiful blending of moving forward academically in the places they need to move, uh, completing a project that's worthy and relevant to them, and at the same time, building all these critically important 21st century skills around collaboration, project management, habits of mind, habits of success. So so when we start pivoting and pushing that learner to the center, uh, the learner then builds agency, uh, which is a long-term life skill for for the student and also benefits the community itself. So. And the, the third one's closely related that uh, all place-based learning is inquiry-based. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we always start with uh, the shorthand version of that for me is, is asking students what is. And uh, the world is, is becoming more and more complicated with the way we display data, with the way we use media, and really having students do a deep inquiry and saying, uh, how is the world working? What kind of data can I collect? What do I see with my eyes or hear with my ears? To make, to make some conjectures. And it ties nicely into uh, the, the work that some of the, work, the discussions, Tom, you and I have had around big data is that there is more and more data available and how do we teach students to effectively sift, sort, collate, and analyze data so that when they're doing an inquiry, they can pull out the relevant material that helps make them yeah, uh, so stronger. Yeah, so you're sort of simultaneously framing your question and thinking about the data set. Yeah, right, exactly. Where could I, who has data about this? What tools could I use to collect data? How could I put those together? aim an open tool at that at that data set. So and understanding the nature of science, not just of hard science, but 
all sciences. No. Understanding the nature of social science is inquiry, understanding data science, all those things can work in. I also think I'll just add that um, inquiry to me is pivotal in place-based work because it provides an opportunity for more equitable learning because each student through their own inquiry, especially if it's still learner-centered, <laughs> um, has an opportunity to weigh in how they see the world, how they discover, and how they um, observe, view their perceptions and how they come to those findings throughout the inquiry process, yeah. which is unlike when you do more static work and it's um, rote, inquiry allows for those perceptions, beliefs to and, come in. And, and I would also say that as, as uh, young babies and they come into the world, their eyes are wide open. And over the course of a lifetime, most people's eyes, uh, the blinders go on based on our, our, our experiences in life. And I think inquiry forces us to, to keep our eyes wide open and expand those blinders so that, so that we're always saying, what's going on? What are the observations I'm making? What are good questions to ask around the economy of a place or the ecology of a place or the social equity of a place, et cetera. Whose so, stories aren't being told. Right, whose stories aren't being told, what happened in the past, what's gonna happen in the future, who's not at the table? Um, so that plays back into how do we use play, place as a tool to really help promote equity in, in the learning experience of all of our students. Emily, the uh, fourth design principle is local to global. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, it means everything to me. I think the local to global piece is, is huge. We find that in a lot of communities, um, we want to see students working on big global challenges. We have a lot of them right now, right? Um, but we also want them to be exploring what the ramifications are of that big challenge or opportunity, global opportunity, um, is happening on a local level. So a lot of place-based uh, learning engages students in this idea where they're exploring a local issue, say what's happening at a watershed or what's happening at a local library, and then unpack what it means globally and how they can make an impact, um, impact there. I think of a student, her name is Jodiana from uh, Big Picture Learning School, the Met School in Providence, where she saw an increased refugee population in Providence and spent a lot of time in the Providence community understanding where they lived, what they were interested in, what services they had, what services they didn't have, and then became fascinated on the global scale with the refugee um, crisis that's going on abroad, spent a lot of time internationally, and then actually went to some of the communities that the refugees from Providence came from, understanding um, how she could better serve them in her local community. So quick example, powerful local to global place-based learning going on. Yeah, this is such a cool topic because it can go either way. You talked about this yesterday where you can, you can take notice of a local problem and then be exposed to the global issue, or you can study the refugee challenge and then uh, and then look at the local version of it in your community so it can go uh, both directions. And informs your work and makes it better, right? The more you understand the global, the more you understand the local, they both feed off each other. And, and it also helps this idea that teaching students that collectively, um, when, when all students are, say, working locally but connecting globally, um, collectively all those communities together can make a difference in the world. And it gives some um, ability that students, a perception that students actually can make a difference um, and can make change happen in whatever way they think is, they see fit or the community sees fit. Uh, whereas if you start um, with something very, very broad like end poverty in the world and say do a project on that, and it, it's a little bit difficult uh, to find that a tangible connection to that. So. Well, and also having students care. 
I think about Professor Partridge at um, a community college in Hartford where he said most of his students were from Hartford and didn't care about Hartford and thought there was nothing there that was relevant. And after engaging in really deep place-based work, a lot of them want to stay, live, work, raise families in Hartford and are doing things not just on a local scale, but also on a global scale. So tapping into why they might care about where they live or... Yeah, that um, story about Iowa Big, um, Cedar Rapids, I was talking to you all yesterday where... They're starting to look at metrics of student perception of community, meaning the Cedar Rapids community, prior to entering the Iowa Big program and then uh, when they finish or after the end of each year. And they, what they have started to see is uh, a significant increase in um, uh, how much they care about a community, how much they see potential in a community. And really, if we want to think about what we want young people to do is if we if we want them to come back and re-engage with our communities, they need to have a strong, positive perception about what's possible in a place. And so I think great place-based education achieves that through um, some of these examples we've been talking about. Essentially building democratic values. <laughs> yeah. The, the next design principle is design thinking. And that starts with understanding a problem and then moves quickly to empathy research. And it sounds like what the examples that you've both described are really good examples of kids exercising empathy research to understand what someone else's experience is like. Yeah, I think taking a really human-centered approach um, to place-based ed is inevitable, in my opinion. Um, and and by human-centered, it also could be place-centered, right? Understanding the non-people in that place and what they need and how to show empathy towards that place. Um, we right, think design empathy for an individual, but also empathy at scale, empathy mm -hmm. for a place. Yeah. Right. Um, so we think design thinking is a key principle of place-based ed because in theory, you're entering a place not knowing. You're entering a place and um, thinking of solutions um, that serve that place well. And then using the skills of iteration, feedback, going through that loop of design thinking to really create something that um, tackles that, that empathy Back challenge. To, uh, high quality PBL, right? Mm -hmm. uh, creating uh, a valuable public product, making a mm -hmm. contribution to that place. Nate, what's the Teton Science School view on design thinking? Is it just, um, is it a mindset or is it a methodology or is it both? Yeah, so that's a good question. So two things. One is we tap into this deep connection to inquiry. So if inquiry is uh, helping students see what is, design thinking is helping students, students see what could be. So there's this iterative cycle between discovery and understanding a challenge and then iterating through a, a systematic process uh, around design thinking to figure out how do you create viable solutions. Um, so the other thing we talk about with mind, with design thinking is is really making sure that, that um, that schools that we work with in our own schools as well is that we don't get caught up in that it's solely a technology solution where you need right. to have 3D printers to be a design thinking school. Design thinking is a way of is is a way of uh, of knowing. It's a way of understanding a challenge and saying I can actually figure out and prototype solutions for this. Yeah, as Emily and I like to to view it as a a structured problem solving approach that creates this agency and confidence when kids walk yeah. into complexity. You just took the words right out of my mouth. That's what I was just <laughs> going to say that one of the things that reason why I think it's so important is that it's a unique way to engage students in exploring novel and complex challenges or opportunities yeah. of our time, unlike other prepackaged projects 
um, that we might offer students. Design thinking is a mindset, a way of thinking about the world, about what we're seeing, and about how we can imagine what what could be. Yeah, it's empowering. Yes, but again, really tackling hard problems and developing those attack skills throughout the design thinking yeah. process that they may or may not have had an opportunity to develop. And Emily, I'll have to plug the podcast that we did last month uh, called What's Up With All the Design Thinking Schools, where we reviewed the new wave of schools that really make design thinking central to their approach uh, and across the curriculum. Uh, Nate, the last one on the list of the Teton Science School design principles is uh, interdisciplinary approach. Right. And it ties directly into some of this high quality PBL work that we've been discussing is that uh, we all we all know that, that the world's interdisciplinary. I think uh, discipline specific work is created for us to to uh, in the education systems to teach things single by single and really isolate uh, different parts of, of knowing and knowledge and skills. And there's, um, there's still some value to that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's important to understand the the, the framework for a particular discipline. For sure. And we talk about, so in our place network model, which is our network of schools that use place-based education, we talk about uh, uh, not only a project-based approach, it's very, very interdisciplinary, but also a personalized approach. And so we think about core skills and uh, English language arts and mathematics, and we actually add a design technology sequence as well, that developing those skills is critical, discipline specific, so that when you get to these high complexity place-based projects is that you actually have the tools to do it. And, and it's been written about, they're, they're not Swiss cheese, right? There's not these holes in it because we don't have the competency to be able to do the, the projects well. So there's a, there's a good mixture of both. So Emily, we're, um, we're here organizing ourselves to write a, a guide to place-based education. How can people get involved in that work? Yeah, we're really seeking questions that people have about how to get started with place-based education. Um, we know that for some, it's a new um, way of thinking, or I guess it's a new approach. And so we want to know what questions you have. Um, we also would love to have examples of the work that you're doing. We'd love for you to contribute. So sending us um, examples of how you're engaging in place-based work already, um, and that may be on a large scale or a really small scale. Uh, we'd welcome that in form of an email or in form of a blog post. We always love guest blog posts. And you can send those questions and or examples to emily at gettingsmart.com. And Nate, uh, how can people learn more about Teton Science Schools? Yeah, so so certainly go to our website at tetonscience.org, or you can go to our emerging place-based network at placeschools.org. Um, we're really focused on uh, really thinking about rural schools and place-based education, which we think is a vastly over uh, sort of missed uh, experience in the, in the school innovation world, although there's some great rural schools out there. Uh, we work with schools across the country in different demographics and different uh, population sizes. Um, but if you're interested, give us a holler and um, take a look at that website. Uh, you can find me at nate.mcclennan at tetonscience.org. And Nate, thanks for hosting us here at the Murray Ranch in spectacular Moose, Wyoming. Yeah, you bet. It's a great place to do some writing and think about a book and about place-based education. Uh, it's so amazing to think that the Wilderness Act was, was written here. And, and since that time, a lot of great thinkers have come here and said, how can we make the world a better place? And I like to think that we're doing our little part in yeah. that. So Let's go get outside. Thanks. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> thanks, Nate. <laughs> 
A huge thanks to Nate and Kristen for hosting our team. We appreciate their insights into the power of place and the work you're doing for the students of Teton Science Schools. For more on this topic of place-based education, check out Season 2, Episode 16, called Experiencing Place-Based Education at Teton Science Schools. If you found today's episode interesting, be sure to stay tuned for GettingSmart.com for more place-based education content coming soon. And lastly, be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your feedback. It helps us get better and helps your friends find us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline signing off.